Hello and welcome to Catholic Bites, a podcast for busy Catholics. This is Father Conrad. I have with me again Father Joe Rampino from the Hello. Diocese of Arlington. Father Rampino, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. And today we are going to talk about a place you've been. I've actually never been there. Have you not? No, okay. I really need to go there. Yeah, you do. Um, we're going to talk about the Abbey of Cluny. Yes. And um, the Abbey of Cluny is a French Benedictine monastery. It was founded in 910 by uh, William, the Duke of Aquitaine. And... Um, it's important because it really is the heart and soul of the reform of the church during yeah, the Dark Ages. For sure. And do we want to rehearse that history a little bit for them? Well, we, we can a little bit. I can also make a little plug for saying that if you're listening in six months or so to the <laughs> Habemus Papam versions of this, if you're if you're not skipping over them, you know, but in about five or six months, we're going to get to talking about okay. the foundation of the so, so the point of the point of this is that uh, in the late 800s, early 900s, uh, the church is in a bit of a rough state. Uh, oh, Charlemagne, really bad. <laughs> it's it's in a in a rough place. So Charlemagne's uh, descendants have not taken care of the church in his absence, and Rome has descended into full decadence. Oh, it's horrible. Uh, it's absolutely unchristian, uh, a real mess. Uh, and uh, the reform of the church that did take place and eventually bore fruit in people like Bernard of Clairvaux mm. and Francis and Dominic and all these sorts of folks, uh, doesn't actually seem to come from Rome at the time, but from this other place we're about to talk yeah. about. Cluny. So Cluny was this monastery, and what was unique about it is it was established by this nobleman to be outside of the feudal structure. Right. Everything else, and it seemed like in Rome at the time, everything was controlled by the the, the various secular nobles, including Rome. In Rome, the, the dictator of Rome right. at the time was basically, or, or his mistress, was basically picking the popes. Yeah. And so William of Aquitaine, his insight was, we need to establish someplace that can be set aside just for the praise of God and for living out a life of holiness that is separate from all of that stuff that has its own land, it's outside of the feudal right. structure, and is just on its own. It and belongs so, only to the Lord. And Cluny was born, and Cluny was blessed to have like the first five or six abbots were all saints and they wanted to live a reform of the Benedictine monasticism. Benedictine monasteries had kind of gone downhill, uh, had become lax, right. hadn't, hadn't followed the rule of St. Benedict and they wanted to live that radically. They wanted to live it as it was meant to be lived in pursuit of holiness. And you know there's a story about the second abbot of Cluny. His name was St. Odo and St. Odo was uh, part of another monastery. He didn't he didn't like it. He wasn't, wasn't really uh, challenging him to live holiness. And so he hears about Cluny and, and St. Berno, the first abbot. And he's like, okay, I got to go check this place out. And so he walks to Cluny. And as he's walking there, he comes upon two or three monks who are leaving Cluny. And they're like, don't go there. That place is terrible. <laughs> like, it's not comfortable. We don't get fed well. The abbot's like a fanatic. You know, he just <laughs> wants to pray all the time. And, and, and Odo's like, Oh, yes, Excellent. sign me up. You know, <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm looking for. Perfect. <laughs> and so he goes there and he eventually becomes abbot. And, and basically what happens, Cluny uh, gets franchised. Right. And they establish daughter houses all over. The Pope invites them to take over monasteries in Italy. Eventually, um, even Monte Cassino, the great initial abbey of, um, of uh, the Benedictine order, uh, becomes a Cluniac uh, house. It's not quite a Cluniac house, but staffed by Cluniac uh, monks. And this, like commitment to holiness really bears fruit in the church and yeah. and we see you know some of the great reforming popes 
started in Cluny, right. uh, especially uh, Gregory the Seventh, um, the biggest of the, the reforming, the, the popes. most important of the uh, reforming popes. He spent some time in the Abbey of Cluny, and uh, some of the popes, what they would do is like when they got to Rome and they were elected pope, they would then write to like the great abbots of Cluny, like Odilio and some of the other, and Odo and, and some of great these guys. Names. Oh, oh, great names. At Hugh the, and, and Peter the Venerable, and he, they'd write to them and say, hey, send us your best monks, because we need, we need holy guys down here in Rome to yeah. help uh, help inspire and bring about reform. And right. so they would send like a bunch of monks down to Rome, and then those guys would all get made cardinals, and then would get made popes themselves, and then would go like, uh, you know, do all these different things and help. And it worked for the church. Yeah, it was awesome. It worked for the church. It we, made it possible. It cleared the space for the for the figures that we know a little better from later on for things like uh, the Cistercians yeah. and things like the, the Franciscans, Franciscans and Dominicans. Franciscans. And, and, uh, ultimately, you could make the argument, and I would, that the flowering of the church in the 13th century, in the 1200s, mm-hmm. only happens because Cluny had cleared the way uh, for in sure. a tremendous way. For sure. Chesterton has this great line in his biography of um, uh, St. Francis where um, he says, like, the Benedictines had... Uh, through prayer and fasting had like kind of stored up the treasure of the church and had protected it. And then Francis, right. you know, is this spread new flower and he can spread it out everywhere. Right. And he says, but you know, the old world needed to be purified. And, and he says, and this kind only comes out through prayer and fasting. And, and, and that's, that's and that's an excellent thing. point to make is, is that the, the beginning of the reform of the church was not through activism. Yeah, exactly. Right. That the reform of the church that took place in, in what could, you could argue it's darkest hour, uh, took place not through a whole litany of programs or initiatives or things like this, but it took place through prayer. Yeah. Uh, and as much as that terrifies us to think that the answer to our biggest problems uh, is something as subtle and as uh, silent and as hidden as a life of prayer, uh, that's the fact. Yeah. Is only prayer actually gets the work done that, that needs to be done. Well, and this, this, this is... Um bringing us into your your territory in this sure. uh, this podcast which is that what is it about monastic life what is it about Cluny that was right. so effective for so, um, reform it's uh, this is something that that I'm working on a little bit is is looking at a history of the common life of clergy and when i say the common life of clergy i mean life lived together mm-hmm. so throughout the history of the church any time the church has tried to reform any time that she has tried to reach towards uh, a, a state of greater holiness for her people. Uh, she has always done this through reforming the life, life of her clerics, and the tool that she has always used is common life. Yeah. That she has always said, if we want to get this right, we have to get our clerics together in the same house, praying together, keeping check on each other, building each other up in virtue. Inspiring each other to holiness. Right, pursuing holiness together. Because while it is true that it's possible to become holy in isolation. There are some saints who have done this. There are some people who are called to be hermits. Our own Diocese of Arlington has an official diocesan hermit, which is a wonderful (laughs) thing. Uh, That's not the normal route to holiness. God places us in families for a reason. He places us among brothers and sisters and parents uh, because it takes a community, usually, to become good and a community that's focused on holiness. So you can look at the councils of uh, Toledo if you really want to get into really obscure church councils, which is lots and lots of fun. You can look at uh, the, the way the Spanish church and the Roman age uh, set, they, the way they raised their clerics. The idea was that all of the clergy of a place were to live in the house of the bishop under his direct supervision, and he had to live with them, and they had to pray together. And that was the idea, that they all had to live the life of holiness 
not just together in spirit, but even physically in the same house together. That's what Cluny accomplished for the monks. That's what St. Benedict had accomplished for them before. You could even go to the Council of Trent, and this really interests me, is that when the Council of Trent founds seminaries, you can look at the 23rd session of the Council of Trent, uh, what the Council Fathers propose is actually just a return to common life. Yeah. When they talk about seminaries, they say the, the point is that you should take people from an age that they're pliable and, and docile and can be taught a new way of life, and you make them live together. And, and Trent, even in, in the notes of the 23rd session, uh, specifies that the bishop is to be with them, mm. and they're to be with the bishop, uh, and that they're all to live this common life together before they're sent out to different parishes to live, but that the key is is practicing charity in community and learning to love holiness as a band of brothers. Yeah, you know, that's interesting because you don't think about the fact that you just assume that, oh, priests go to seminary and that's right. where they learn how to be to be yeah, priests. Because everybody goes to college. Exactly. <laughs> but the way it used to be done is you would basically be an apprentice to, right. you know, some other guy. Yeah. And it, if he was just kind of lackadaisical, you would end up right. being lackadaisical. And then, you I know, mean, at least for the rural clergy. What, what I find in, in my research is that for most cathedral clergy, because mm -hmm. there was a distinction between cathedral clergy and clergy out in, in a rural parish. But the idea was even more extreme. Not only would you be apprenticed to somebody, which is the normative mode of human learning, you know, apprentice, master to apprentice, yeah. but you would enter the house of the bishop at an early age and you would live there the rest of your life. Wow. That you would enter formation as, as a young man and you would learn to read and to write there in the house of the bishop while also learning how to pray and also learning how to pursue holiness. And you would be learning from, you know, the 80-year-old priest who had, or the archdeacon more, uh, more often than not, but clerics who had lived in that house their entire life. Uh, and you were entering not just for a time, like you were going to, you know, boarding school or to college to learn how to be a priest, but you were being apprenticed in person, not just at the beginning of your priesthood, but all the way up until the day you died. Uh, you were being apprenticed constantly by the community. Now, wow. that had to be purified because if the community goes bad, yeah, that's you know, then you can encourage each other in vice too, well, which and is that, not And helpful. that's the interesting thing about uh, if you look at the history of the church is that every time there's been a period of laxity or a period where the church has really fallen into sinful uh, behavior, God's raised up great saints and great religious orders. Right. You know, And you see that like, so St. Benedict, you see Cluny, then after Cluny you have like this incredible flowering of the 11th century of, you know, the Cistercians and the Carthusians and right. the Norbidines and the um, Camaldolese and all these other different groups. And then you go Excellent from Excellent words, man. Yeah, no, it's great. Camaldolese, um, bring that up next yeah. next time you talk to somebody. <laughs> and then you go on, you see the Franciscans and the Dominicans and the Carmelites, and then you go on For from sure. that, and you see the Jesuits, and you see all the different religious orders uh, that were founded after the Reformation. And then even today, we have different religious communities that are being founded and and, and bringing about a flowering of, of, um, of holiness through this common life of pursuing a common goal, which is, is right. uh, living with our Father in heaven. And, and all of that, you know, we, we, can, we can owe a huge debt of gratitude to the, the humble monks of Cluny who, right. who really wanted to live a life of the gospel, yeah. you know, and really wanted to live it out well. And that's the truth is wherever there's a group of people that are willing to live in obedience to the gospel and pursue holiness with their whole heart, there will be renewal for the church. 
Exactly. Wherever that happens. Well, that's a great note of hope to end on. So thank you so much, Father Rampino. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you'd like to listen to other great Catholic podcasts, you can find us on catholicbitespodcast.com. And I promise you, we'll be getting to Cluny soon in the Habemus (laughs) Papam. we got a couple hundred years left to go before we get there, but we'll get there. Um, and uh, and we'll get to see the badness of the church and also the flowering of, uh, of, of reform, which is really beautiful. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and God bless you.